Imperfect listeners, and welcome back to the last ever interview of the Imperfect Pod. Thank you everyone so much for tuning into this last episode. It is with Anthony Spark. In this episode, we talk about his journey of being from a really traumatic family. A cycle of dysfunction is how he describes it. We talk about how he almost went through a divorce, how they his relationship with his wife recovered for that. Uh, we talk about what it's like to raise twins, what it's like to come from a place of poverty to now a mindset of wealth and financial literacy. We tie in some topics around that at the end. It's a great episode. Anthony's really high energy and I hope you all like it. As always, feel free to follow me on, on Instagram at the imperfect pod. And um, yeah, all the details for Anthony will be in the description of this podcast. So make sure to check those out if you're looking to contact him too. Anthony, I'm, I'm honored to have you as my last ever The Imperfect Pod guest. Dude, I'm uh, excited to be here and I'm looking forward to hopefully be insightful and a worthwhile final listen for this group of people. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure you will. Our, all of our conversations so far have been good. We've we've contacted and, and met one-on-one three or four times now, I, I yeah. feel like it is, um, and really excited about your story, the energy that you're going to bring. But the first question I always ask my guests is, who is one person, dead or alive, that you would like to have over for dinner, and what would you cook for them? Hmm. Uh, who would I like to have over that's dead or alive? I mean, these are like, you know, I'm not going to over fatalize this because normally it's like just like a huge question, you know, so since it's not actually happening, I'll just give somebody good. Um, and you got Hamilton in the back. So we'll rock with Alexander Hamilton. I'd like to see if that level of ambition was really burning him out in an unhealthy way or not and really kind of get a feel one on one rather than the other stuff. And what would I make? What would I make? Um, you know, I think I'd probably make beef Wellington. Beef Wellington, cream spinach, mashed potatoes. That's what I would make. Would you make it yourself? Like you're, you're yeah. a good cook yourself, you'd say? Yeah, my dad's a chef, so I grew up in a kitchen, and uh, okay. you know I've been cooking. Uh, you know I don't I don't cook often. I don't really like to eat what I'm cooking. You know it's because like you're around it so much, so it loses mm-hmm. like all of the gratification. But I can pretty much cook anything on a first pass very well. Okay, just a humble brag yeah. there. I'm I, yeah. I can't do that, but uh, do you do you follow recipes or do you make your own from scratch? If I'm if I'm making something I've made before, then I usually have an idea. Uh, otherwise, I can just rock off of a recipe, but I'll never follow exactly the recipe. The recipe is kind of just like a guide, you yeah. know, and then I'll kind of little of this, little of that kind of thing. I feel like when you when you cook enough, it's it's kind of a feel, you know. Yeah, no, I, I agree, and I learned from my mom that uh, just add more salt. If if, if ever in doubt, add important. more salt. Yeah, um, that's but the restaurant up- secret. Yeah, I'm sure it is. But you brought up your dad, which is going to be the main premise of uh, at least Mm -hmm. the first part of this conversation, because from what I know about you and what I thought, and the reason I reached out to you to be on this podcast is that for a time, your father was in prison. Mm -hmm. Your father was a serial cheater. He had his own business too, so that there's some sort of responsibility there. Mm -hmm. Kind of fill in the dots, connect the dots about the environment that you were raised in, and then we'll we'll ask more questions about it. Yeah. My dad has a legacy of dysfunction. 
uh, from just generations and generations. I mean, my great grandfather was super abusive. My grandma ended up like escaping her family at 15 years old, had my dad at 15 years old. Her dad was physically, emotionally, sexually abusive. I mean, like really bad stuff. So my dad grew up and my grandma was just, first of all, she was 15. Second of all, she'd been abused her whole life. So it just was not a healthy way to grow up. Um, so he ended up going into, he went to the branch of the military at like 18, I think. And then he got kicked out for insubordination, gambling, carousing, you know, so he got dishonorably discharged. So he ended up in Texas. And then he lied about his background and became a chef in Texas and was like sleeping with this way older woman. Um, so his like entire life from the beginning was just built on lies and dysfunction, you know? Um, so he met my mom when they were like in their late twenties and it was just, he just always struggled. Uh, he cheated all the time. Um, like he would cheat, like it, not like, like, like what's not like a infidelity, like, you know, something happens and it's like this whole thing where it's like, okay, like it's totally wrong, but you could see something happening. It's just like over and over and over and over and over again. My, when my uh, sister was like just born. My grandfather on my mom's, my mom's dad hired like a private investigator. And then like my dad had barred my grandpa's car. And then he was like running from this private guest investigator because he was cheating on him. He he totaled the car, wrapped it around like a telephone pole. Um, my, my mom, when my dad, when my grandpa died, they bought a house and some cars and a deli. And then when my dad was running the deli, he hired a cokehead he was sleeping with that was stealing from the drawers. Once he lived in this house, with this couple and he was banging the guy's wife in their house, renting their apartment. And then he was in a gang and like, he hit him overhead with a pipe in like uh, in an alley. And then there were, you know, then, then he was in like a, I don't remember some type of a Latin gang. So we have like orders of protection. I mean this, he ran up like a $5,000 one, 900 sex line phone bill on cell phones and like the early, you know, late nineties, early two thousands. I mean, it's just like thing after thing after thing. And that culminated into him getting addicted to Vicodin. And then eventually selling Vicodin to support that habit. So when I was probably, I think I was about 18, he ended up selling to an undercover cop and he ended up going to prison. I think it was probably four or five years. So that's a, that's a quick summary. Also yeah. on weekends, he would be the bouncer for my cousin's strip club that they had opened that they were laundering drug money through. So that's just a quick, uh, just a quick synopsis of the yeah. background. Here. And there's a lot there. It sounds straight out of like the departed almost in terms yeah. of the, the structure of, of the family. I, and there's a lot of things in there I want to dissect because one of the privileges I, I think, or maybe advantages of I had in my life recent that I've been reflecting about a lot is that I don't have a, a, a family background like that. It's, al it's yeah. almost like boring, really un unentertaining compared to that. Right. And it seems like almost the way you're brought up is a, not normal, but it's a really large portion of society that I'd say yeah. grows up more in dysfunction than in peace and harmony. Yeah. So were you, con how conscious of this as a kid were you? I, I know kids learn a lot from yeah. the environment they're growing up in. Like how much were you aware of, of what was going on? Uh, I'm pretty, I was pretty precocious as a kid. And, um, you know, I always loved learning. I was blessed with an aptitude and I was reading, you know, pretty high level stuff at a pretty young age. I met when I was 13, um, what was the youngest member of Mensa in New York state. I don't know if anyone that's not familiar, Mensa is an organization that you have to take an IQ aptitude test and score in the top two percentile to be a part of. So he would give me like existentialism and, you know, really high level stuff for like a 13, 14 year old. So with all that, I was very aware 
of pretty much everything that was going on, which did give me a very inverted type responsibility parenting situation because I was, you know, the eldest of three and I was really a father figure for my brother who was significantly younger. He's I think nine years younger than me. Um, nine or 10, maybe nine and a half is probably why I'm thinking it's in between my sister's two years younger. She was much more like sheltered. Like she just never knew what was going on in the same, uh, but I was very aware of a lot mm. of the things that were going on. So wh which parts were you most aware of the gambling, the drugs, the cheating, all of them. So what pressure did that put on you as a young man? Like how, how did you view the idea of being a father of being a man at that, at that time? Um, at that time, I just was, I mean, I'm a pretty, uh, logical person. So, and I'm blessed with a pretty good ability to, to look through emotions, uh, which can be a positive and a negative. It's probably part of my dysfunction, but for me, it was just like, this is just really stupid. You know, like I, I worked in the deli with my dad. And then like when he lost that business, I was working in a kitchen hand with him because I was 14, 15. And there's not that many job opportunities, you know, unless someone's going to pick you up and drive you kind of thing. So almost every morning, particularly in the summer, my dad would be falling asleep while driving like multiple times on the way to work. So it was never like, for me, it was always a great example of what not to do because you could directly see the immediate devastation and consequences for all of these different choices playing out in real time around you. So while it does, it does become something that you need to deal with and you know, anyone that has a dysfunctional background, if you don't go to counseling, I find by the time you're about 25, shit's going to start hitting the fan, maybe a little before, maybe a little after. You can only hold it together for so long. But um, it gave me a really good perspective. Like I wasn't going to be a drug dealer, you know, like I'm not, I wasn't looking to go to prison for four or five years. Um, I wasn't going to do a lot of those things. And I actually made a lot of those uh, judgments and like, like I'll never do those types of things, which I do feel can become real challenges for you, you know, particularly when you don't deal with the things and you start to see those tendencies and some of those dark, that darkness in you later, because now you get this compounding issue of making choices that might not be the best, but also feeling unbelievably guilty and shameful on top of it, because you said, I would never be this way. So yeah, uh, so that was kind of what it was like. I'm curious then, did anyone ever say that you're just like your dad at any time in your childhood? That was, when very, you were that up? was unacceptable. There's like nothing that would be more offensive in doing yeah. that, you know, like so it never no, happened. Not really, because okay. that's literally calling you an asshole. Like, yeah. you know, no one in my family was looking to say you're a piece of shit asshole. You know what I mean? So no, that never really happened. Um, mm. Do I have similarities and do all of us take some good and bad from our parents? There's no doubt about that. I don't care what anybody says. That is absolutely factual. But that would that would be like cursing out a kid, you know, in my family. Yeah. Okay. Cause, cause sometimes I always find it really curious that in those heated moments, there's times where that's weaponized that you're just like this person or you're just like your uncle, your grandpa. And I remember there was times in my life when I was compared to my uncle, my, my grandpa in like more negative ways, yeah. not that they were that level of extreme, but I'm like, I don't want to be compared to them because in that context, we talk about them very negatively of how you're sure. talking about me, right? So I was really interested in, in hearing, and I'm glad that it wasn't weaponized for, for you. A few times. I, I mean, I thought we were saying it more like a casual type of a thing. Like, that's not like a casual thing to say. Yeah. Like, well, a few times, once in a while that was, but that's like major, 
you yeah. know, no, no. Like that's like, I, I, I don't get really angry. I'm going to fly off the handle if someone says something like that. Cause there's nothing that would be more offensive. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it's, it's good that you know that and have navigated that. So you also mentioned that you're eldest of three and you mm-hmm. had to be like a father figure to younger siblings. How, and I know that's very common in immigrant households and, yeah. and a lot of different, um, just different families in and definitely North America. What did you take on? Like what were some of your responsibilities that you felt were yours that your father especially wasn't providing for your siblings? Yeah. Well, I had to be an example. I had to be a model. I was babysitting. I was paying bills. You know, I was helping my mom pay the bills since I was basically 15 years old. I was paying rent and paying into the household. Um, so really almost any role, um, that you should have as someone that's in an authority, a male authority position, you know, I was filling in a lot of degrees. Um, I wasn't maybe dispensing punishment, but I was, you know, talking about what's right and what's wrong. And, you know, I was doing all of those things, spending time, building relationship, all that. Yeah. And and you did talk a little bit earlier about knowing what you valued when you were younger and, and creating boundaries for your life. And, you know, for me, I would see if, if my dad was doing all these different things, I would be, be like, Oh, I can do them. They're, they're morally acceptable. I, I should be able to dip into maybe these unethical type behaviors. Was it ever a time when you really thought that you might go down the wrong path that you might be too far gone? Yeah. There's, there were times in my, you know, uh, mid twenties where we almost got divorced, you know, and I can kind of flesh that out a little bit because it's a little bit different because during that time, one of the benefits, I had a few benefits that a lot of people don't have. That's a bit rare. First of all, my relationship with my dad wasn't that terrible. It was, he was making terrible choices and doing terrible things that created collateral damage. But it wasn't like I was being abused. It was very different. It was always like, I'm basically an asshole and you're going to do much better than me. You're better than me kind of a thing. Um, So that definitely insulates a little bit. Uh, I was lost my train of thought. I got the COVID brain. You're talking about your your own divorce. Oh, I'm going to get to that. The other thing I was going to say was I didn't have someone in my life that was making like ethically – you know, questionable choices, getting positive results. I had, I had someone making clearly ethically wrong choices, getting immediate bad results, being hated by everyone around them. So Mm. for me, it became, it wasn't so much like, can I, can't I, because if we're going to go that route, I feel like I can do anything. I'm the guy that's not going to stop at a stop sign. I'm not going to stop at a red light if there's nobody around because I'm not going to be a sheep to just follow a rule because it's a rule. If a rule doesn't make sense, I'm not going to follow it, particularly if you can't give me a, any type of negative wait, consequence. Wait, do you period. actually go through red lights if if there's oh, no one there? Always, hundred <laughs> percent of the time. I mean, anyone that doesn't, I find I, they 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 that's sociopathic. I disagree. Sitting at a red red little light bulb that's stopping you, wasting a portion of your life for absolutely no reason. That's sociopathic. I mean, opinion. I've thought about it, but I've never done it. Yeah. So I that probably affected things, you know, because some people operate like there's things you can do and you can't do. I've never operated like that. You can do whatever the hell you want. I operated and there's very clear consequences in what you do and what you don't do. So it wasn't for me like, can I? The answer is sure. 
sure, I could start a drug ring. Sure, I could steal things. And I, I did a few of those things. But for me, it was the consequences morally, ethically, and the thinking that would come along with it, the conscience that would burn you up. And it was just like, I'm not, I'm not going to do these things because I don't want to end up with the consequences, you know? Yeah. This is where the more logical part of you comes out than the emotional yeah. part, I would say. The rational part, the rational person would say, why would I stop at a red light when there's no one around? Right. <laughs> no, I love that. So that, that, I think that ties in really interesting is that from, a, from being a child, there was a negative feedback loop in terms yeah. of the actions that you saw. Because I think a lot of people, whether it's, and you mentioned abuse in the home, abuse in the home is almost never reported because mm. of fear. Yeah. And so there is no negative feedback loop. And that's that's really interesting that you identify that and you've been able to use it throughout your life. Yeah. And it was, you know, really clear because it's like, again, like I don't, I'm not angry at my dad. I don't feel, I never, there was a time I was angry for sure that I had to work through as I was a teenager going through. But as I worked through those things and thought about those things, it's more so like a very sad tragedy because it's just a response to major trauma and, and your own mental health issues and personal issues and abuse issues, you know? So when you look at it and I looked at it through that lens, it's more so just something that's so sad. I would see how much it would tear my dad up that he couldn't see us, you know? And he, it would be like these, just these really emotional negative situations that would be gone through over and over and over again. The reason I mentioned the divorce is because as I got older, I did develop more empathy because I saw the, the traumas and the impacts and the issues that caused some of the decisions that caused the destruction. So it went from this makes sense and doesn't make sense. I want these consequences. I don't want these consequences, which does make us legalistically judge the people. It's the people that are judging an addict, judging an adulterer, judging and saying that's wrong. I would Anyone that says I would never do that, I know has absolutely no idea what they actually could and would do because they've never been in the situations that cause a lot of those behaviors. So as I got older and being emotionally unhealthy and not knowing how to be married and not having any type of understanding of myself, not sharing, not having any level of emotional intimacy in my marriage, where I ended up drifting to is because there was a lack of, of intimacy and there was a lack of um, proper relationship. You know, Callan had issues. I had issues and we weren't willing to acknowledge them. We went to counseling. It was kind of just like surface little nonsense. And we're like, we're fine. And we'd project this really great image. But eventually what that led to was me having conversations with just some girl that I had met in networking for business. And she was super far away and there was nothing that ever really happened. But I knew that if this person was here, I could make choices that would then make me like my dad. And because of that and saying, I don't think that I'm going to be able to be the person I'm supposed to be. And I'm not going to be somebody that breaks down a relationship. So then I just made a unilateral choice in my head that blindsided Callan caused ripple effects and negative trauma for years that we needed to really work through lack of trust. I just one day said, I want to get divorced and that's it. And there's no discussion, you know, after being married for several years. So in having those situations happen, it gave me a lot more empathy and understanding not to make it right, 
but to understand some of the things that can cause choices and behaviors that tear our lives apart. Mm -hmm. And I, I love your honesty and your transparency with what you just said, because I think that whole, I would never thing is also incredibly bullshit, you know? And this comes from someone who isn't, hasn't had a lot of things happen to them. So Mm -hmm. I don't know what I would do in a lot of situations, but I've always been confused by people saying I would never do this if I was in that situation. I'm like, how would you know? Like, how would you know you going to a party in university? You thought you'd never drink. You thought you'd never drink person. And here you are downing like four shots of vodka within five minutes. Like let's, let's not talk about, I feel like right now, especially there's a lot of moral superiority that we're trying to, to flex on other people rather than trying to really understand where they're coming from. And so I empathize with that. You know, you probably thought you'd never, you would never be able to uh, want to get a divorce. I, right. I think I would, I would never, ever think about cheating. But realistically, I 100% think about cheating. Like that, that's something that we think about all the time. And it's part of admitting that to ourselves that is the process of going beyond and, and healing. Yeah. Yeah. That's where, I mean, and I, we talked a little bit about it, you know, I, 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 I often don't want to even talk about Christianity because the version of Christianity that I see is moral superiority and bullshit. You know, the version of Christianity that I, I, I've come to adopt in my life and have faith to be able to live the life that I live is I am, I do suck and I am capable and probable to do all the terrible things that people are pretending like I would never do. That's the whole point that I would, could, and do continually do wrong things that make no sense and are totally selfish and deplorable all the time, whether it be in thought and sometimes unfortunately in action. So I think that that, that feeling of, you know, the straight judgment of choices and people never leads to change or growth or anything good for either party. Mm-hmm. It's just a lot of projection. And I would agree the same thing about my experiences with Christianity too, is that yeah. it is a lot of, I go to church on Sundays and that therefore makes me a better person despite right. the actions that you make for the other 120 hours of the week or however many hours are in a week. And I'm like, where's the dis, where's the connection there of what you're actually going to do and why aren't you admitting it to yourself? And I've always thought, you know, why does the church look at this one issue one way, but this other issue a completely different way when Mm -hmm. like they're always trying to preach empathy and understanding. I'm like, none of it has really made a lot of sense to me. I've always been like, you know, the church is a flawed institution, just like most institutions are flawed. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a really interesting connection there. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, for me, it's about grace. Yeah. You know, largely. Yeah. yeah. And grace is a really powerful word for anyone that knows or grew up in a Christian home. They know that. Um, yeah. Used properly, and, not used, not yeah. weaponized. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you did talk a little bit about counseling, which I'm really interested in too. You, I think you talked about it more yeah. on the personal side and on the relationship sh- side. Did you go through both like personal counseling and therapy for yourself and then for your relationship after? Yeah. So I've done, I've done, I've had quite a few counselors, you know, I had, we still see a 
a, a, it's a marriage counselor, but it's also personally counseled both of us. Um, and he used, he's a psychiatrist, a psychologist rather. Um, and he's not even a psychologist. He's, he's really a counselor that uses um, a temperament-based approach, but he's somebody that's that's been married for 40 years and has really worked through a lot of things. So I think he's like expert level, which is super rare to find. Um, but outside of that, I also have seen other counselors, you know, cause I've, I've been in this place where some of my choices, I have a lot of mental illness that runs in both sides of my family and I, I'm torn. I don't know if it's behavioral thinking causing chemical or is it chemical causing behavioral? I don't know. I think it's probably a little bit of all those things. I think it's the traumas and the thinking patterns. I think it's chemical as well. So I've seen lots of different counselors because the reality is I am not perfectly balanced and I need to make sure that I keep myself on track with proper regimens and habits and different things because I can go from ridiculously nihilistic like nothing matters, difficult to do anything to, you know, hypo kind of manic where not manic, you know, hallucinating, but like, let me just work for 48 hours kind of a thing. So outside of, uh, counseling for our relationship, which we still see, and I think it's one of the most important things I recently did a live with our counselor about the process and, you know, us working together for the last six years. I mean, his name's Bill Hoffman. I use a book out called the process, which is tremendously helpful and has really made a big difference for my emotional health. I've been really working on emotional health and counseling for really six years. And I really feel like I'm just getting to the point to be pretty emotionally healthy in my own life, dealing with these traumas and these different things. But counseling, in my opinion, I don't know how anyone successfully is married without getting counseling, without dealing with things, without having mediation, without getting the proper tools. It's like saying you want to you wanna, you know, be like a 20-year athlete with no coaching and no condition strength, strengthening coaching. It just makes no sense to me to even expect that unless both, both people come from like really faith-filled, solid, successfully married with like your parent, like no divorces in your family, then sure. I mean, it's kind of baked in to your experience a little bit more, but I don't find that to be most people's scenario or situation coming from where they've never had any traumas. They're entering into a relationship in a way where they haven't had any abuses or anything. I don't meet that very often. So counseling yeah. is, a, is, a, is a necessities in my world. Yeah. And it's funny that you say that because I would say that for most of the relationships that I've been around in my life, at least in the family, they have been uh, faithful. Um, even when I was like a kid, most of the relationships mm. that I saw were healthy, ma stayed married relationships. But I still have always been someone that's like, the moment I know that this woman is the one for me and I put her, like a ring on it and or propose, that's when I want to start couples therapy. Absolutely. Because it doesn't make any sense not to pursue couples therapy. Like it just doesn't even cross my mind to not do couples therapy. Yeah. And and people seem to have this so reactive approach to living life and I want to be extremely proactive in living my life, so I read books, memoirs, I read yeah. a lot of nonfiction, I talk to a lot of people because I do I I'm on the one hand I want to make the mistakes that that because I learn through mistakes better than reading books. At the same right. time, why not be aware of what might come up so you know how to navigate it should it ever exist? Like the the two things can coexist at one time, which a lot of people refuse to see or acknowledge. So I've all I'm I'm with you 100. percent I've always wanted to do couples therapy as soon as I propose and and know that I'm going to be or believe I'm going to be marrying that woman, uh, because 
I, I, I want to make sure that we do stay together and do create a healthy environment for ourselves and for our potential kids. Yeah, that's, that's really great starting point. So there was another thing that you mentioned earlier in terms of emotional health. Mm-hmm. Like what does emotional health mean to you? I'm really curious about if you could paint us a picture or describe what that looks like now six years in. Yeah, um, I find that most people, they, all of us, we develop coping mechanisms to deal with situations, traumas, issues, people, relationships. And very often they're created because they were a necessity in the moment or in the time and it worked then. And maybe it works to a degree in the future, but they cause all this. It's like a, that it's like the medicine that you take. That's got like the laundry list of negative side effects. That's the way I find most people are approaching relationship from their intimate relationships and their marriages to their family and their friendships. You know, some people are codependent. Some people are counterdependent, where some people are have a hard time letting go and they're trying to fix people and their emotions get unhealthily intertwined with someone else smothering them. Some people are protective in their like an oasis where they're not having any relate they're counterdependent. They're not trying to ha- they're making sure that no one can get close to them. And now that they're 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 suffocating from a lack of intimacy and being known, being seen, because they don't have anyone that they're letting be seen. Some people tend towards like super oversharing that makes people uncomfortable and it's like almost this weird mechanism that's in one extreme others never share how they're actually feeling so being emotionally healthy in my opinion means that you know what your needs are in relationship you're you're fulfilling them in a healthy sustainable way for all the parties involved and you're you're having the proper boundaries with people and things where you're able to function in a healthy holistic manner with the people in your life from your people that you're working with, people that you're interacting with, even the unhealthy people, you're you're able to effectively work through and put up boundaries and properly um, interact with them in a way that's not harming you. Mm-hmm. So, in summary, kind of like a balanced approach to to emotions. Um, I guess maybe. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, and and there was something that you said in there that I thought was really interesting, and I didn't write it down. But I was writing down something else because you you gave the definition. Um, but I, I do think emotional health is is really interesting. Do you think a lot of it comes down to being present with who you are as like an individual? Um, or is it more like is it self-awareness? What would you more define it as in terms of like that approach? I mean, I, I think you need to have, I think self-awareness is a really important starting place because you need to know what your needs are and you need to know who you are and how you operate. You know, different people have different emotional and relational needs and different levels of desire for intimacy and autonomy and all these different things. So knowing that self-awareness certainly is an important starting point. Um, it's also important that you're able to properly feel emotions and have a healthy emotional spectrum, you know, that you're, you're not flying off the handle, that you're able to create safety and you're not, you know, sorry, I don't know if you can hear, can you hear that screaming? I'm going to pop out really quick in a second just to see if I can handle that. Um, but self-awareness is a really important starting point. I have three-year-old twins, everybody. So I apologize for any noise. No, but that, that kind of leads us very much to the next stage of life, which uh, is a very smooth transition to parenting. Now yeah. you've, you've created 
a whole life out of this dysfunction, as you call it. Mm-hmm. How do you, how have you made sure that that cycle of dysfunction hasn't transitioned to yeah. your home and your kids now? Yeah. So this is a tough thing for, um, to accept, but anything that you don't personally deal with, any of the patterns, the issues that you don't handle in counseling and therapy, you will by default pass on to your family. Either you are going to be a generational curse breaker and you're going to work through it and you're going to get healed and learn and get the skills and break the cycle, or you're going to propagate it and you're going to pass it on. So the emotional work and what we do in our marriage and me personally is the most important thing and the only way that those, those things don't get passed on in my opinion. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree. And and I'm curious about the timeline here is as you mentioned earlier about the the potential divorce. What when was that in terms of your relationship? Like how long ago was that? I think it was 2016. So me and Callan have been together for 10, 11 years. Um, so that was probably five-ish years into our, our relationship, maybe three years into being married. Um, and then we had another rough patch right after the kids came. Um, so that was three years ago and our, I'm more proud of our marriage than I am of the, the companies that we've built, the, the vocational success, the financial success, you know, all the organizational success we've built. I feel like your marriage is more important, more difficult and more rewarding than any of those yeah. other things. Yeah. I know. I'm, I'm, I'm curious, the rough patch that came after the kids, what do you think what, it was it the same type of arguments or was it completely different in that the, it was really hard to spend time to, together? It was improper meeting of needs because I wasn't putting myself in a healthy position to be able to be consistent in the way that I needed to be. You know, if we don't fix the root issues, we end up f- using the same unhealthy mechanisms to fulfill our needs. Needs are going to be met and you're either going to meet them in a healthy way or an unhealthy way. You know, a lot of people try to attack a behavior versus it getting to the root of the need that it's fulfilling. And if you try to just remove a behavior, you're not going to be able to will yourself into removing something that is, you know, it's going to, you're going to find the path of least resistance if you don't fill the need in a healthier way. Yeah. So in most of your need meeting or roots for that need was, was through counseling? Uh, no. So I needed to find a way to get proper emotional, um, I needed to be emotionally available and to be emotionally available, I needed to really work through my own issues and intimacy and sharing and not, not like suffering in silence and, you know, being like this, you know, person in this version of, you know, you just need to handle everything kind of a deal. Um, and you know, sometimes I feel a lot of people are afraid to be seen and to be authentic and to be vulnerable. Uh, even in relationship, because you feel like you're you're not worthy and you're going to be judged because of the thoughts or the things and the you know types of things that we deal with. Um, so because I wasn't doing that, I wasn't. We didn't have any of the needs really being met properly in our relationship, um, which spilled over, and it, it put me in a pleasure type of seeking space where I'm. I was fulfilling my needs in ways that were super unhealthy. Mm. And and it's interesting that you talk about that because one of the things that you mentioned earlier was being like over vulnerable, over sharing. And I feel like mm-hmm. that's much more where I come from is that mm-hmm. I do like being seen. It is a thing where I, I do not even like too much on the attention side of things. I don't like a lot of attention, 
but I do like being seen. And I don't know if that I'm still navigating what all that means in in my journal mm-hmm. and on my walks and stuff, but I do think I am someone who can overshare and be too vulnerable because I do want to lead by example. At the same time, I find that when I am upset, I really shut off. Like I don't want to talk. I will open up eventually, but my one of my main criteria in a relationship in the future is that there is that space, there is that healthy atmosphere where yeah. you can share. And I, I find so many men are afraid to share. And mm-hmm. that has always been part of the premise of this whole podcast is how can we get a generation of men that haven't been told they can share to share. So, and you talked about it a little bit earlier in terms of your more natural, rational way of thinking, logical way of thinking. What were some tangible ways that you learned to, to express emotionally and be emotionally available? Uh, You know, I'm a, I'm a pretty stubborn person, you know, so that's why my, my changes come from, you know, uh, catastrophic failure. So I, I just knew that it wasn't gonna, it wasn't going to be effective. You couldn't, I couldn't have an effective relationship in a marriage if I didn't do those things. The consequences were too grave. Mm. Um, so you know, tools. You need to say how you feel, and you need to actually share. You know, and you need to find a way where you're not lashing out in anger and you're not like trying to sarcastically, passively say things. You know, people don't know what you need unless you clearly are open about it. And you need to reciprocate and listen and and fulfill the needs of your partner. So, but um, there's a tool that, you know, our counselors use that I find to be, you know, pretty effective in getting to know. I think the most important starting point is knowing who you are, your propensities, your strengths, and your weaknesses. There's lots of versions of it. I'm pretty skeptical of most of these things. Even as I use this and I've had the results, I'm still skeptical of the things, you know, even I've had so much results in my life with them. But we use the Arno profiling system, which I have found to be very insightful and um, helpful in understanding your partner. Cause very often we don't share, we can't share effectively what our needs are in a way that the other person can hear. Um, so that's a really important starting point, but getting to the point that you can work through disagreements and arguments, you can give space for someone to see things in a different way. Cause you have two different people. Also, I find that a lot of times people are, they get an ideal that they think that they want in a partner and they try to squeeze this person into this fake mold and they're not loving the person that they're with. They're just trying to scrape their edges off and squish them into this preconceived mold of how they should speak to them and what they should do and what their, you know, like should be and their preferences and their physical intimacy and all these different things. And if they don't match the thing that you decided you wanted, then people are mad and upset and act as if their partner's wrong when you're not starting from the right place, which is loving and appreciating and getting to know the person you're with. You're just yeah. in love with an idea. Yeah. And and that's so common is that people are on I, the I, in love with the idea of love. They're not in love with the person themselves. And I've been, I've been thinking about this quite a bit recently through the songs I've been listening to is that they talk about, uh, loyalty is more important than love because love people do bad things in love, but people don't really do bad things in loyalty. Like the, the, the way they classify it are, are, is pretty different. You're either like loyal or you're not, you're not loving or not loving. Like there's no, there's a lot more gray in mm-hmm. love. And, and it's been something I've been thinking about quite a bit. And I love how you worded it there because 
it is true. We almost always fall in love with ideas, even like business people, creative, we all fall in love with ideas. But when it comes to the work we actually have to put in, that's when we're like, all right, maybe I need to take a step back. And, and people, I was always raised in an environment where marriage and love is work. It's like hard work. It's not seen as something that isn't a 24 seven job in my family. And I think that's helped me a lot in understanding what I need to understand going forward when I look for a relationship. But, you know, I still, as we talked about earlier, I don't know actually what I would do because I've never been in that situation. I've never been in a relationship. I'm 24 years old. So there's just a lot of, I can say as much as I want without actually ever having been through it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, at least that's a really good starting point. A lot of people, they think that uh, relationships happen and they, they, they take a real Hollywood Nicholas Sparks, who's divorced, by the way, type romantic novel. And yeah. they think that's what life should be. And that's just, that's just fantasy. Yep. It is just fantasy. Rom-coms have put hard expectations out there for both women and men in yeah. terms of their performance and how to express love. But, uh, kind of the, the last part of this, uh, episode that I really wanted to talk about was the legacy that you're now creating for your children, for your family. Um, and I, I'm really interested in that because I, you, through our other conversations, you know, you wanted to be retired young. You yeah. want to be able to set your kids up for a position in life that you never really had. Mm-hmm. So why don't you share a little bit about your parenting style and how you're setting your kids up for success and the legacy you want to leave with them? For sure. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I think it's most important, at least for me in a parent is not deciding what you're expecting and wanting, uh, for your kids. You know, I feel like that, that bad mindset of having like an image of what they should be to be successful or loving for a partner. It's the same thing people do to their kids. So I don't have expectations for what my kids should be. My goal is to support who they are. And help them become the the version of themselves to pursue their passions and to be able to have the financial ability to do so. Um, I was blessed where, you know, I had always been looking for alternative ways to create um, a different sort of lifestyle. And when I was 18, I met some people that had retired in their 20s and were internet entrepreneurs and just had a life where they were able to do charity work and travel and, you know, had a life that was really second to none. I mean, there's, I think it's like, 4% 4% of American households are, um, I don't know what the Canadian stats are, but it's like 4% of American households are millionaires, but it's way less than 1% of anybody that's below 35 has a seven figure net worth. So, you know, I started to pursue him. And because of that, I was able to leave my full-time job at 25. My wife was able to leave. We're both able to both be stay at home full-time parents. Um, so, you know, I read a, a autobiography, a biography rather, um, about, Teddy Roosevelt, the rise of Teddy Roosevelt's the first ones by a South African guy. I think it won an award, but his dad, Teddy Roosevelt's dad put him in a position to be able to do the politics and all the different things he did because he financially set him up. He had the money where he fixed the money problem. You know, his, his, you know, Teddy was super sick growing up. They went like a year sabbatical in Europe, like in the middle, like one year, his dad just took the whole family to Europe. I mean, that kind of level of wealth that they had. So really what our goal is, is financially is 
whatever it is that my kids want to pursue, whatever passion that is, whatever difference they want to make, whatever art they want to create, if they want to do business, whatever it is, they can, but it's not based on finances. Where financially, we took and we were prudent and stewarded our finances and our impact and took advantage of all these massive changes in the financial economy and all the different things that are going on to put ourselves in a position where our kids not I'm I don't stand for for um conspicuous consumerism just to be clear you know like i i mean i'm not i have a lot most of my friends do you know and that's totally fine i'm not judging people if they want to do those things but for us and our family luxury brands and this all this stuff that's not what wealth is for wealth is for creating the impact you want to see in the world relieving and alleviating human suffering and giving options and choices to self-actualize and pursue the values and the art you want to create so um so yes that's kind of our spot you know i'm pretty uh pretty atypical we don't really i don't really like traditional schooling um you know our kids will probably do something with unschooling which is just learning i mean i i, I haven't i didn't go to college i've read hundreds and hundreds of books the last 12 years and learned so many different things i mean we have you have full access to almost all human knowledge and ivy le level coursework online so if you're driven to learn and you able you're able to to curate that that curiosity and that desire of learning and that intrinsic reward system of the feeling of learning and pursuing knowledge i feel like that to be significantly more important than these standardized tests i don't care who you are there's no civilized human being that is going to not be able to read write and communicate effectively if they pursue learning and they all everyone will like no one's going to grow up and be you know illiterate yeah so Anyway. No, and I I love that. So, so the first question I want to ask is, what is the book that you gift the most to other people? It's usually what I'm reading that's impacting me. You know what I mean? So um, I really love The Infinite Game by Simon Sinek. I find that to be a tremendously great book. Um, I really like Awareness by Tony DeMello. I find that to be a tremendous book as well. Uh, Ruthless Trust um, I'm reading, which is by Brennan Manning, which is the kind of the kind of Christian I like, super deep, you know, addict, like multiple relapses of being like on the side of the road, like in a binge, you know, like homeless, you know, mm -hmm. like super, you know, real, 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 you know, yeah. like talking about, you know, he tells this story in one of his books. I think it was the Ragamuffin Gospel of this guy that and I, I i i struggle with the books now so it's like a book that i struggle with no matter even talking about it so don't be like wow this guy's like really deep you know i struggle with it but tells this story of this guy's an alcoholic and on christmas eve he has his daughter and he stops at the bar and it's like 70s status and like he leaves, I think he leaves the windows open and she basically is, has brain damage and he gets drunk at the bar, leaves her in the car and she like freezes and like loses her fingers and is like brain damaged. Like ridiculous levels of forgiveness and grace and these different things. It's like, what? So anyway, I, I really like to read those things because I feel like that's real. That's life. You know, it's not this first world, you know, like gilded life that most of us live where we're just kind of like having like these basic pleasures of buying things and eating and hanging out where we really have no need to even survive. It's, you know, I really like to explore the human condition and what's real. And unfortunately, a large portion of that is how do we deal with suffering? How do we deal with terrible atrocities and, and tragedies? 
that happen in our lives that sometimes we're the architects of. Yeah. No, I, I love that. And I, yeah, I, I like to read too. So that's why I was curious. And I wanted to say that I was actually homeschooled till grade nine. Oh, wow. Um, so I don't know if it was unlearning. I still had textbooks and stuff, but my mom taught me I was, I'm the youngest of four. So I think I credit that a lot to my thinking now yeah. is that through that system. And I actually did a project in university with some people and we design a school in which it's not really a school. It's like mono, takes from like Montessori, takes from ideas from homeschooling and, and lots of different methods of learning to create a different environment for learning. Cause I also think, you know, university, especially now, especially through COVID when you're just paying for a zoom license basically yeah. is way overpriced. Like it, I, I don't agree yeah. with it. I don't, I don't like it. Um, I did do university myself, but I didn't actually see it as useful beyond the social construct yeah. of university, not the actual in-class ability too much. Yeah. I mean, you know, my kids are going to do what my kids are going to do, but my, I, I also feel that there's no more dangerous place in the world for a teenager than a college campus. I mean, the incidences of the tragedies and the life-changing and terrible choices that can be made and the things that in, a, in split of second choice and whatever are quite high, you yeah. know, so I will be praying a lot and a nervous wreck at that yeah. time. But I do agree that the only value <laughs> of that is the, the the experience and the connections for sure. Yeah. Everything else you can get yeah. online lot, yourself for free. You should read a book called American Hookup. It's about mm. the sex life on campus, basically. And it's a really great book. Um, I will. Sounds if terrifying. You're, if you're interested. It's it's sad, but it's about the human condition. So I think mm. you're, you might enjoy it quite a bit. I actually reached out to the author of that book and um, – she won't be on this podcast because this podcast is ending, but she's going to, she Sweet. did say yes to uh, me interviewing her later this year. Um, cool. Yeah. So I did want to ask a follow-up questions to your raising your kids in a way that nothing is financially out of their reach. And mm -hmm. I, I know that you only have a few minutes left here, but you know, a lot of the ideas is that wealth and growing up in a wealthy home will infringe on those kids' ideas of wealth, of hard work. Like, are you are you concerned about that at all? Are you worried that by creating too much of a cushion, they might live too easy of a life because you just talked about suffering and all that? And are yeah, you trying to shield question. them from it too much? It's a good question. Um, am I trying to shield my kids from suffering too much? I think that that's a big challenge for every parent. So I think that that's a, just a always, right? Um, but at the same token, what I feel to be very different is the way that Callan and I feel about money. Money doesn't have us. And I don't believe in the caste system that gets created with people with money. So why I don't feel like that ever will happen is because when you look at money as capital to be used to make more money and create change, there's it's a very, very different mindset than this nouveau fake rich now that you think money is to make other people think you're more important by buying a more expensive new car and a bigger house and having, you know, luxury brands. I don't, I, I, again, I don't judge anyone, but for our life and our family, I don't, you couldn't, you won't be able to ever tell our net worth by what you see. And our net worth in almost every instance will be greater than almost than 99 plus percent of people because of the way that we use money and the way that we live on such a small amount. So when my, if my kids were to interact 
with neighborhood kid XYZ, soccer team, whatever. They won't because they're not going to be positioned societally as if they are better than because of their financial resources, because we get all our stuff used from Facebook market or the thrift store, and we make a lot of money and we're continuing to build long-term wealth. So it changes the dynamic, I think, of how people are being approached when you're not flaunting money to make the other person, when you're not signaling, because that's what luxury stuff is, signaling I'm better I have more money and resources so much that I can waste them on this bullshit. When you're not doing that, I don't think that you intrinsically believe you to be more valuable than anyone else. And it alleviates the problem that we're asking about. Yeah. And it grows up, like you said, you, you're, you learn a lot from your environment as a kid. So if you only see be buying used things, you know, you, you grow up with an idea that it is a collective. It is a, yeah, that's not the environment that you grew up in. Right. Kind of my last question that I wanted to touch on in terms of your own financial literacy. I know that we probably have a lot of men who, who do like the self-improvement aspects of it. What are some ways that if they want to become wealthy or see their capital as a propel, uh, propulsion to wealth, like yeah. what, where could they get started and, and how could they get started? Yeah. Um, I'll give you the three steps I think everyone has to follow, but what my livelihood is, is in training and coaching and teaching people how to become healthier, more fulfilled people with seven figure net worths. I mean, we've helped and we speak to thousands of people a year. We have a, a proprietary coaching and mentorship program that helps people earn more income, make money online with some businesses that we have experience in and really to teach people how to invest properly. But the three steps I believe that everyone needs to take to get to financial independence, which is really for most people, somewhere between two and $3 million of money invested in a conservative manner, is number one, learning how to interact with money and how to properly budget and learning financial fiscal responsibility. The fact that you know, Cal and I, I mean, we make well over $300,000 and it's all business income. So we keep way more of it than you traditionally would. Our companies do a few million dollars, you know, and that's just some, that's our base income. That's outside of any appreciation of investments that we're doing or outside things. That's just my main base company. Our car is probably one-tenth the value of most people listening, you know, so learning how to take money and budget properly and learn how to look at money and interact with money is the most important starting point. Because if you make a million and spend a million, you are less, you are, have a lower net worth than someone that makes 50,000 spends 40. I know people that make 50 grand a year that are millionaires. And I know people that make $500,000 that have $0 of net worth because they just buy expensive things and they think that money's made to be spent on liabilities. So that's the first step everyone needs to take. Second is to then appreciate and value where you acquire skills to make more money in your core competencies and you get management positions, negotiation skills to make more. And you also sh should build something outside that you own, some type of a side hustle in my opinion. It could be a second job, but again, you're going to take a huge amount of time for a long period of time to do that. But either way, you need to increase your earning potential because if you set your lifestyle at a conservative level, and then you increase your earning power, you can then number three, start to take 20, 30, and eventually the goal is 50% of your income. 
invest it in a healthy, proper manner where you're able to diversify it from some of the things that are more speculative and have huge earning potential, like some of the hedge funds and the and infrastructure of cryptocurrency and cryptocurrency itself, uh, angel type investments. And you can also have huge amounts in an index fund or ETFs. You can have a real balanced portfolio. So over the, the 10 and 15 and 20 years, you put yourself in a position that you have a three or $4 million nest egg and you buy the rest of your life back. So that's kind of the, the, the path. And it's super boring, the saver investor path to go down. And it takes most people, you know, 20, 30 years to do that. But if you increase your earning potential and you're really, and you're really smart with what you do, I don't think there's a single person in a first world country hearing my voice with the proper advice or the proper program behind them that in a five to 15 year period can be permanently financially independent and build legacy wealth. Yeah. And it, and it, for, for you, just to set everyone up, like this took a lot of mentorship, right? Correct. Like it was oh, a lot yeah. of people and pouring into your life. Yeah. I've been coached and mentored at, for the last 15 years. Um, my business partner, Tony was just on, um, uh, Necker Island with Richard Branson and a privately invited 20 couple, uh, group. Um, so I'm connected to people that have tremendous connections and insight that have been coaching and mentoring Callan and I, and that's that there's a, there's a, a chorus of people that have been coaching and mentoring us that have specific results in different areas. And I've aggressively read, I've been reading an average of a book a week since I'm, you know, 18 years old. Um, so we have really worked hard to do that. And we worked hard on building a company. You know, I mean, our companies are really starting to grow exponentially now, but it took a long time. It took a decade of working hard consistently to get to the point where over the last five years, I mean, it's replaced both of our incomes and now is becoming very significant. Um, but yeah, a tremendous amount of help. That's why we're passionate about helping people. We love the industry that we're in to be able to do so. So I don't think there's anything else that's worth it other than making a difference. I mean, all the stuff, all the money, all the things we do, it's all forgotten in 100, 200, 500 years. It's meaningless. It's the only thing that's meaningful is how are we treating people and are we alleviating other people's suffering? Are we helping people further along? Are we developing, you know, true fruitful relationships? Because that's what matters. Mm -hmm. And now to close it off, uh, Anthony, where can people find you, support you and the work that you're doing? Yeah, um, I do webinars pretty regularly, but you could reach out to me. A spark is born, underscores between the words is my Instagram. Um, you know, you could shoot me a text. I mean, I don't know how many people are listening to this. I find that even if I speak to groups of 20, 30,000, most people don't have the guts to text me anyway. But if you want to text me, certainly feel free to reach out. My cell is 631 327 2241. You can email me, anthony at phoenixevolution.co. Um, and yeah, I mean, we have a, we have a podcast. You can check out Extraordinary Excellence if you want to check out another cool podcast. Since Luke West is going to be paused, you might need something to listen to. So uh, you yeah. can always head out over there. But yeah, I'm happy to help. Please reach out. We get so much meaning and purpose and fulfillment from helping other people. Happy to, to help you in your journey however we can. Perfect. Well, thank you, Anthony. Thank you so much for your story, for sharing it with uh, us today. It's been great having you as the last guest uh, on the show. Th great meeting yeah. you over the course of the last month. Um, glad I reached out. Glad I, I hit send on the on the message. And uh, hey, this people, this is what proof of what could happen if you just text Anthony. So yeah. uh, you could have him on your podcast potentially. I don't know. Happy but, to. Uh, <laughs> thank you, Anthony, so much. I appreciate you and and uh, proud of the work that you're doing and and the the man that you've become. Thanks, man. Proud of you. Keep it up.
Thank you everyone for so much for listening to the last ever interview episode of the Imperfect Pod. Next week, there will be episode 75. I had to end it at like a really impactful number. And on the episode, I'm going to just reflect on some of my thoughts, reflections, ideas that have all happened throughout the course of the last year and a half. So make sure to stick around for that. And I'll talk to you all next week. 